Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Richard Palmer. I'm one of the pastors here at Country Bible. Um, one of the things that uh, I uh, am passionate about is helping others in their own spiritual growth and uh, biblical learning. This morning's message is a continuation of our marriage series. The name of the topic today is Disasters. So I hope you enjoyed those few seconds of laughter. I may ask you to draw upon that in the minutes ahead. In fact, I want to open in prayer. Heavenly Father, I, I want you to open our hearts and our heads this morning to what you would have us know about you, what you would want us to know in terms of our relationship with you. Lord, some people this morning are going to be hurt. Some of the message is going to recall memories that, that they have protected themselves from. I ask that you guard our hearts this morning, guard our minds, and to focus upon your truths. And I ask this in the power of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. A young man got home from work. Nobody home. Saw a note on the kitchen counter. It's from his wife. Reads, I wanted to remind you that tonight is girls' night out. Supper's in the refrigerator. X-X-O-O heart. So he rolled his eyes and he walked toward the refrigerator intending to get a beer and see what was for supper. He never even got the refrigerator door open and his phone rang. And he answered it and it was a woman's voice. And the woman asked him to identify himself. And he did. And She paused for a moment and she said, I want you to know that your wife and my husband are together at this very moment. And you can find them at, and she proceeded to give an address over the phone. And the man tried to take it all in, and he responded very quietly. He said, if this is a joke, and she broke in and said, this is no joke. She said, I've known about this for some months. I just wanted you to know. It's the beginning of an earthquake, isn't it? It's the trembling tremors of disaster. That man walked in his front door thinking, feeling, imagining one way, and in a few moments' time, that all changed. Church, we're under attack. The world is attacking marriage, a God's institution. They're attacking us very similarly to the way those poor people on the East Coast are being attacked by that hurricane. Those people over there, Mother Nature has beaten those people up and they've beaten them down with high winds and they've flooded their entire existence. Many people have been flooded right out of their homes and in some cases it will turn out to be out of their entire lives. Lives have been lost. Infrastructure has been totally demolished. 
We live in a sinful world. By the way, a sin that was brought by human beings, not created by God. We can't, we can't default to that excuse. God did not bring sin into the world. We did. And a marriage lives in a sinful world with two people who are sinful. And so disasters will occur. It's just inevitable. Sometimes those disasters are the direct result of our sin, such as this scenario I just shared with you. But Lord knows there are other catastrophes that occur that we can lay blame on no one, that we, we scratch our head and wonder why, who's to blame, what caused this, such as the young couple with two small children, beautiful home, opulent home, play area in the backyard, a swimming pool, a rec, air, rec area, a, a, a patio that bled into a 60-inch television on the wall. Mom and dad were splashing in their pool with their four-year-old. Beautiful day. Wonderful life. Suddenly their nine-year-old boy who has been running up and down by the pool most of the afternoon suddenly slips and falls from the wet concrete, hits the back of his head, and mom and dad jump out of the pool instantaneously, just out of instinct to run to him as they find that he has a bleeding wound in the back of his head. They deal with that, only to find that moments later, their four-year-old had just slipped under the water. What do you do? What's your response to be? What are your choices? Those people that have been suffering from the hurricane know full well that their infrastructure has been weakened, if not destroyed, and they also know that plans were already made to rebuild, to recover. And those plans are being carried out when and wherever they're able to begin to reestablish stability in the area, knowing, of course, that there are consequences, that people's lives have been lost and hundreds of thousands of people's lives have been changed probably forever. This is very similar to the challenge that we have in marriage when we are faced with disaster. The aftermath, sometimes you cannot comprehend the pain, the suddenness. You're in shock. You don't know how to think straight. You don't know what to think. You don't know what to do. I'm going to give you what I believe are some answers for you to choose from. I'd like to share with you what's called a game plan. I didn't realize this, but game planning is really popular. I thought game plans were only for coaches in ball games, but there are game plans for just, just about any aspect of life. And so I spent some time, I wanted to provide you an option 
I think this is applicable for a post-disaster option. And you'll notice that it begins with imagine your goal successfully accomplished, visualize exactly what you want. Followed by another step, get focused, clearly identify what you need to do. Third step, set a realistic timeline for accomplishing your goals. Identify what it is you're going to do at each step of the way, and it might be day to day, week to week, maybe even longer. And then final fourth step is get going. Activate. Start now. That certainly seems to be a responsible sounding game plan. It seems to be clear. It seems to be concise. It seems to be complete and includes all of those elements to be able to reestablish what once was, to recapture some sense of normalcy. And I'll, the world will offer this to you, and I want to show you this as a prime example of one of the options that we as believers in Jesus Christ have. But I want you now to take a look at the 11th chapter of Matthew, if you would. And as we take a look at that, these are the words of Jesus himself. Before I do that, anyone that would like a Bible, would you just please raise your hand? And we've got those that are very eager to give you a Bible. Gives those of you that uh, already have one a chance to find the first book in the New Testament. 11th chapter, beginning at verse 28. These are the words of Jesus when he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden that I give you is light. What is a yoke? It's like a harness. He's saying, I want you to follow. I want you to follow me. I've got this ultra-light harness. You won't even know. Won't even feel it. I want to teach you, Jesus said. See, the game plan only has two pronouns in it, you and your. The game plan that the world offers us is all about us. Game plans are about you deciding what's in the game plan. The game plan is about you deciding how to administer it. The game plan is about you deciding when to start and when to sequence and when to conclude. It's, it's a plan that makes sense to a point, but it's not what Jesus says that we are to do. He wants us to choose him. He wants us to place ourselves with trust and belief in him, and he will lead us. And in that process, that heavy burden, psychologically, mentally, 
even physically and especially spiritually, will be made light. It is exactly what one is looking for following disaster. But it's an option. It's a choice. You still have that power to choose. One of the uh, options says, you lead. The other option says, let me lead. Pastor Andrew, two weeks ago, gave us some wonderful Bible truths that have to do with following Jesus. These are especially important in, in crisis. And it begins with humble submission to the Holy Spirit. Nowhere is the Holy Spirit mentioned in the game plan. Jesus exhorts us to choose him and to choose to follow his ways through his Holy Spirit. The second thing is we need to willingly sacrifice. And in this case, in this situation of tragedy in marriage, the sacrifice will probably look like this that you sacrifice your desire, your utter need to be the boss and to give that up. To take Jesus and instead of him being your co-pilot, you exchange places with him. Instead of riding shotgun in your car of life, you need to exchange places with Jesus. I know exactly how difficult that is. I know what I'm asking you to consider. But I'll tell you this, when you reach a point when your heart and your mind is submissive to God and that you've sacrificed your own will and your own ego, you're in a position to quit thinking about just yourself or the unbelievability of what's just happened to you and you can look around you and actually see the needs of other hurting people whose lives have been damaged, if not destroyed. Can you do that? Can you you play the role of a four-year-old child who's at the Mall of America during the holiday shopping season? Can you hang on to daddy's hand knowing that you don't know where you're headed? Knowing that all you see are butts and knees. (laughs) Your whole world is butts, knees, and the feeling of my hand in daddy's hand. Knowing that dad will never let me go. There's never an ounce of doubt about that. And my world is hang on tight to dad. Suddenly we're going to the right. And I follow dad. Suddenly we stop for a while. I don't know why. I don't know even where we are. Suddenly we start again and we go this direction. And I follow dad's hand. And I do that faithfully. And I do that expectantly. And I do that with a heart that's at peace because I'm looking forward to the destination. Like I said, I don't know where we are. 
I don't know how we're going to get where we're going to go. I don't even know how long it's going to take. Remember? Are we there yet? And then suddenly the butts and the knees are no longer in front of me. And there it is. In all of its glory, our destination. I got there by only trusting my dad. And that sign reads, Baskin and Robbins. (laughs) That little one had no doubt that they were going to get ice cream. It wasn't a part of the plan, didn't know the route, didn't care. Had dad's hand. That's all I need to do. Can you do that? Especially following mind-numbing disaster. Can you do that? After catastrophe, maybe after catastrophe has occurred in your life and in the life of your spouse? I believe you can. But I'd give you three words. When you do, hang on tight. Now, I've been talking about the Holy Spirit, and I've been talking about hanging on tight, and I've been talking about uh, things that don't really provide you much day-to-day practical application. So I'm going to do that right now. I'm going to offer four things for you to think about. The first one is prayer. This is your direct communication with, with Christ and with our Heavenly Father. It is an umbilical cord, a spiritual umbilical cord to God. Umbilical cords don't turn on and shut off during pregnancy. They're always open channels. You can go to God right now if you choose. And in fact, I want to stop for a moment and say, if I have brought some bad memories to some of your minds and hearts, I would suggest that you right now, that you pray that you ask the Lord to protect your heart, to guard that heart, to keep from those things and to focus more on the love of Jesus. Philippians tells us, don't worry about anything. Oh yeah, that's easy to say. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he's done. Then, you notice the word then is a conditional word. It means you must accomplish what precedes it. Then, if you accomplish what precedes it, you're going to have the experience of your life. You're going to have an experience that beats anything going to Disney World, anything virtual reality, anything that man can conjure up. Your experience is going to be God's peace. And it goes beyond our ability to understand. It's insane. When you try to describe it to other people, Good luck with that. It's something that you must experience. His peace will guard your hearts and your minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And this is the part of the, the message I think that it requires the most focus today. And that is, once you have experienced and been ambushed by something that you cannot even believe actually occurred in your life, Satan is going to rush to your ears, rush to your heart, and going to whisper things that will encourage you to have an emotional reaction and to think thoughts 
and to do things that you may well regret later on when you're thinking more clearly. Don't think for a moment that God doesn't understand the nature of humanity and that when we get, when we get hit alongside of the head, we go into shock. Instead of trying to fix things immediately, and I understand that, there's a desperate need to get back to normalcy, to get back to the way things were, to get back to the way I thought about myself and my family and my spouse and my life. But so often in our eagerness to get back to normalcy, we fail to get Jesus and keep Jesus in the recovery process. Another thing I would suggest is you need to be with other believers. Proverbs 27, 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. One of the most common reactions when a tragedy hits a marriage is that the partners isolate themselves from one another. And in fact, they'll isolate themselves from the rest of their friends and acquaintances. It's a a natural kind of reaction that quite honestly leaves you even more vulnerable to the suggestions of the deceiver, of the father who invented lying, Satan. You need to be with other believers. You need their love, church. You need their understanding. You need to hang out with people that have maybe gone through the same thing and gone through it to encourage you, to teach you, to exhort you on, to support you in the bad times. Third thing that I would offer to you is, frankly, the book. It's a a wonderful book, but it's a quirky book. You know, this book talks about itself. Talks about itself in 2 Tim 3.16. It it says, all scripture, that's me, it says, is inspired by God. How much of it is inspired by God? Does anybody here not understand the definition of the word all? And it's useful. It's a game plan to teach us what is true. Remember what Jesus said, I want you to choose me. Let me teach you. Do you know that Jesus is called the Word? Called the Word of God? Do you know that more times than not, Jesus didn't even speak original responses? He simply quoted Scripture? You can learn how to live your life from this book. There are a lot of people who think, oh, this is too old-fashioned. Do you know how old this is? This is the 21st century, man. What are you talking? It's old. It's out of date. It's obsolete. It's stupid. It's filled with mistakes. It's filled with conflicts. I can show you this and that that just contradicts itself. It makes no sense. I don't understand when I read it. That's a choice. That's something that you'll hear. But this scripture from the Bible itself says it's useful to teach us what's true and to make us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and it teaches us to do what's right. I love that because it, it really provides us a complete picture. How many of you know people that love to bring to your attention everything that you're doing wrong 
or to listen to people go on and on and on about everything that's wrong in the world. Well, it's one thing to sit there and do that, but it's another thing to teach how to avoid that, how to correct that. How many times do you hear people add that dynamic? The Bible clearly will do both, but you've, you, you've got to get into it. And it's an amazing book. In fact, I have a book. I was going to bring that up here. See, somebody who's in my position here, uh, I like books. Books are good. And I've got a great book. It's called, So That's in the Bible. And what it is, is a list of no less than 3,000 plus topics that have to do with everyday life right here in Nebraska in the 21st century. And it covers all of those kinds of things that you don't want to hear about. Sexual immorality, drug abuse, alcoholism, marriaging, parenting, etc., etc. If you're interested in getting that book so that you can look up a topic that is weighing heavily on your heart, and then you can find the scripture that it refers to, it's a very good practical way to carry out one of the many methods by which we can follow Jesus. And I want to give you an example, Ephesians uh, uh, chapter 4, verse 31. Following disaster, get rid of bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. Here, church, in essence, are the two choices. The Bible wants you to avoid the first choice. So he's lobbying you. You've got to get rid of the bitterness, the rage. You've got to get rid of your anger that will lead to harsh words and slander and worse. You see how it escalates? It's talking about thoughts, attitudes that lead to behaviors, what you might say, and then it leads to actions. That's the way Satan deals with us in the aftermath of catastrophe. Doesn't want us to make a great leap all at once. He just sows a seed. Oh, who's to blame for this, do you think? Laying blame. Injustice. Insult. Leads then to things that you'll say and unfortunately, it's all too easy to find a whole group of people when they hear you say those things are going to applaud you and say, you go. You have every right. It's not fair. It's not right. Things would not be this way if it hadn't been for him or her or them. You must guard your heart, which is why I gave you prayer as something to consider. That last verse in Philippians 4, let me read it again. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in catastrophe if you choose Christ. 
Those first few hours and days following a tragedy are probably the most critical, where you need to run to Jesus, and almost like when you put your hands over your heads and the little kids, and they go, wah, 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 you need to do that to drown out what Satan would have you believe. And then after you have come to your senses a little more and the shock has subsided somewhat, and you're able to actually think straight and to think about others, then you might, you might have that chance to take Dad's hand to get some ice cream. The fourth thing, I think, is the ultimate weapon against Satan's attacks. The fourth thing, I think, is able to neutralize the attack. It is able to help us to think more clearly. It is able to produce in us a calm. It is able to produce in us the ability to make a godly choice. And you know what that is? It's forgiveness. I'd like to go to Psalm 32. David sinned a great sin, not once, not twice, not three times, four times, probably 4.75 times did David sin greatly. I'm not going to go into today what that sin was because that's not the point of today's sermon. What is the point of today's sermon is to take a look at David's response to the catastrophes that he brought on himself and on his family. And it reads as the following, Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin. My body wasted away and I groaned all day long, night and day. Your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Here's an aspect of forgiveness. The first in this section is you must admit that what you have done is indeed sin. You must admit that you have sinned against God and quite possibly against others. He says in verse 5, finally, and I take that to almost mean, you know what, Lord, I tried everything else first before I finally came to the fact that I just need to admit it. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. And I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. And here's another aspect of forgiveness. You must ask to be forgiven. After you admit sin, you must ask to have your sin forgiven. And obviously he did because the next sentence is, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Therefore, therefore let all the godly pray to you while there's still time that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. And here is another aspect of forgiveness. And that is once you have admitted that it is sin and you ask 
forgiveness from those that you have offended, and ultimately it always goes to the Lord God, you are to avoid that sin in the future. But you can only do that, church, with God's help. And that is very clearly stated here in verses 7 and 8. For you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. Just like Paul to the Philippians said, guard your hearts and your minds. Here, Yahweh is telling David hundreds of years earlier that he will guard him. He will protect him from trouble. And he celebrates, you will surround me with songs of victory. I win. Evil doesn't. And then a reiteration from the Matthew text where Jesus says, let me teach you. God says to David, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. Not you, David. I will. I will advise you and watch over you. Not you, David. I will. David, you see, made a choice. As in that third installment in Indiana Jones, David chose wisely. So now I ask myself, is David, I'm sorry, is God, is Jesus always the answer? No matter what happens, is Jesus the answer? Is there any catastrophe that, that doesn't apply to the option of Jesus? Is there, a, is there a, a disaster that Jesus cannot deal with? I believe the answer is nope. How about the young family? Husband and wife with a two-year-old son living in a house that they had just uh, uh, moved into, put some hard work, some time, turning that house into their own. Future's bright. It's a weeknight. Doorbell rings. Wife goes to the door. It's the sheriff. Wife is sort of taken aback and says, can I help you? Sheriff says, yeah. He says, I, I have a subpoena here for a paternity test. That was the sound of that wife's life. The bubble that contained her image, her concept of her marriage, her relationship with her family, her home just popped. Right before she opened the door, Life was, three minutes later, that's gone. Can you imagine the pain of that first conversation with her husband? Can you imagine the pain of waiting to take that paternity test and waiting for the results and to have them come back positive? Can Jesus handle that? How about finances? It seems that money is a very, very hot topic in marriages today. People spend more than they make. One or more spouses doesn't manage money the way that they need to without causing conflict, confrontation, bankruptcy. 
What do you do? Can Jesus handle that? What happens if the family that just found out that the paternity test came back positive stretched their budget with child support that forced them to lose their home? You see, there is consequence to sin. And oftentimes, the consequence of your sin is a catastrophe. But even the catastrophe can have ramifications, can have consequences, secondary consequences. Sin is like a pebble in a pond that you drop, and when that pebble hits the water, the ripples go where? In all directions, with equal strength. We live in a world where if you looked at the surface of that pond and you took a hundred people and they dropped pebble after pebble all at the same time, can you imagine the incredibly complex patterns of rippling, counter-rippling, cross-rippling? That's what sin does in this world. So there are times when we suffer for our own sin, but we also can suffer for someone else's sin. And we can cause other people that we never dreamed of to suffer from our sin. How about another catastrophe that's getting to be all too common, and that's catastrophic illness? Fibromyalgia. It took me a week to learn how to pronounce that correctly. MS. And how about the C word, cancer? Oftentimes that has a consequence on the finances of the home, doesn't it? One, very often when one spouse becomes critically ill, it changes the dynamic of the relationship. It throws it out of balance. It it changes the dynamic. And for people that want things to stay the way they are, it's a very, very difficult way to then proceed. And it is ripe to make choices that are not from Jesus Christ in your eagerness to get back to some semblance of normalcy. You might be tempted to do anything I believe that Jesus can handle any one of those three. And I can say that with confidence because I've seen it happen. In fact, all three of these things have happened to my daughter. Within a three-year period, they found out that my grandson has a half-brother who's a couple of years older than he is. The consequence of that forced them to leave their home which they could no longer afford. And months after that, she was diagnosed with cancer. A triple whammy, church. I saw my son-in-law and my daughter struggle with each one of these disasters, praying that the Lord would guard their heart and guard their mind until they could think straight, until they could understand what the options were and to be able to sacrifice their own willingness, strong-willed 
to give it to somebody else to follow Jesus. To not want to be the boss. And when that cancer struck, it did not dissuade them. It did not destroy them. And they continued to hang on tight. I'm sure our Lord Jesus has got some fingernail marks in his hand. Because there were times when that's the only thing that mattered was to wait and to hang on tight. And you know, I've seen this happen in my family and I think that's why I'm here this morning to point the way, to point to an option that I know works, to point to Jesus Christ. It's not easy, it's hard, and it does, there's no quick solution. Is their marriage still imperfect? Yeah. Do they still struggle? Uh-huh. Is there still pain? You bet. Is Jesus still there? Absolutely. Can Jesus handle it? No doubt. Can Jesus do this for others? I believe so. I don't think there's anything that Jesus cannot restore. In fact, this little boy, his name is Nathan. My daughter and, his, and her family have invited him to several family functions. A birthday party here at the fellowship hall uh, was one of those. I remember um, somebody told me that he was uh, seated away from me and asked who I was, and the person next to him said, well, that's Jack's grandpa. You know what that little boy said? Does that mean he's my grandpa? That's when it became very obvious to me that I had a choice I could look at that little boy as the person who contributed to the demise of my daughter's marriage. But I made a different choice. I chose to look at that little boy as being created by God just as I'm created by God. That little boy who's loved no more, no less than I'm loved by God. And that's what my daughter is learning to do. She can choose to look at that boy and think about the worst day of her life, or she can choose to love that little boy who has no control over where he was born, who he was born to, or the circumstances. He simply needs and wants exactly what we all want and need, and that's love and acceptance and Christ in our lives. Not only that, but they took my wife and they went to Adventureland without me about four weeks ago and had the time of their life. And I want to show you, there's a, there's a photo here of the, the, the half-brothers hanging out together at Adventureland. What you're seeing right there is what Jesus Christ and only Jesus Christ can do with sin. It's beautiful, isn't it? But we have a role. We have a, we have a role. We've got a job to do. And it's to hang on tight. 
I know sometimes it's hard to follow Jesus because I've, I've always lamented the fact that he didn't write down, you know, a, a, a chapter to be put in the Bible. How to. But you know, everybody is so different. In fact, everybody is unique that that would have to be a really long chapter. But I got news for you. Jesus did better than that. Jesus didn't write a book. Jesus lived a life that you need to read about in his book. He has given us the example to follow in all occasions. It just so happens this morning's topic is about disaster. You know what Jesus did in the face of disaster? When he was taken to the rulers, he virtually said nothing. Because he was hanging on so tight to dad, and dad said, you don't need to say anything, I've got this. And when Jesus was on that cross, almost entirely bled out, watching people sneer at him, ridicule him, hate him openly with bitterness and anger and slander. Do you know what he did? He didn't spit on them or say some things back or curse them. He looked up and he said, Father, will you forgive them please? Jesus gave us the perfect example. Easy? No. Doable? Yeah. The better of two choices? Without a doubt. So the big so what for all of this is in marriage disasters, Jesus wants us to hang on tight to him, to follow his lead in all things, and to serve the needs of our spouse. I have a handout here. It's available as you leave the building. It's right by the exit doors. It's called After, Happily Ever After. And it has 28 considerations for you to discuss with your spouse. I think you can have a lot of fun with it as well. And I'm sure that you'll be able to talk about things that maybe you haven't talked about for some time. When it comes to money management challenges, I want you also to be aware that Karen Baker, one of our own, is offering a financial peace class. That's a Dave Ramsey-created program that deals with money management. Now, in order to get out of debt, to be able to stabilize your finances, and the information for that is found in your bulletin. Take a look at that. I encourage you to consider attending either that session or sessions that occur in the future. Because the practicality of handling dollars and cents often can be a blessing in our life with Christ, but it can also be the playground for the deceiver. Prayer warriors, if you're here, Men's ministry members, if you're here. Women's ministry members, if you're here. Mops ministry, if you're here, although most of them are 
is a Tennessee attending a conference. Youth ministry members, leaders, Awana leaders, members, youth, children's ministry, special needs ministry. I'm, I'm asking all of you humbly to spend this week praying for marriages. Would you please focus on marriages? Focus on those that are not in marriages as well. In other words, I'm asking that you pray about godly relationships because disasters that will occur in the future can be avoided by choosing Jesus and employing forgiveness. In fact, Jesus and forgiveness can disarm disaster. And I'm asking you to pray this week. Just as I'm asking right now for all of you to just simply quietly, in silence, let's pray for all relationships. Married couples that are here seated together, would you please at this time pray for one another? Those of you that are not in marriage, would you please pray for the marriages and pray for your own relationships? Pray that we can choose Jesus as the option to live our life and to employ forgiveness as the ultimate weapon against the attacks. Let us pray. Lord, what we bring to you at this time, we bring to you in the name of Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah, who is our Lord and our Savior. Thank you.